Hello, and welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. If you enjoy this conversation, please do consider supporting the bookshop by making a purchase from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com. There, you'll be able to find the titles discussed on today's episode, themed book boxes, our popular year of reading subscription, as well as gifts and merchandise, including our brand new Shakespeare and Company sweatshirt. All books come inked with our famous bookshop stamp and can be shipped from Paris to wherever you are in the world. You might also consider joining Friends of Shakespeare and Company, a membership programme we created to support the bookshop's activities during a difficult 2021. The first instalment is now available for members and features exclusive contributions from Natalie Portman, Deborah Levy, Kartika Nair and George Saunders. Visit friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com to find out more. I'll be back at the end. Until then, thank you for listening and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have with me two of the most eclectic and polyphonic writers at work today, Niven Govindan and Musa Okwonga. After his explosive dive into the world of drag balls with This Brutal House, Niven Govindan is back with Diary of a Film, in which an unnamed film director from an unnamed country attends a festival in an unnamed Italian city to present his latest work, a liberal adaptation of the William Maxwell novel The Folded Leaf. What follows is a sensitive and elegant meditation on place, art and family, and how the three intertwine and sometimes interfere with the artist's journey. Musa Okonga, astonishingly, actually has two books out at the moment. There's his memoir of his time at Eton College, One of Them, which examines the systemic sclerosis at the heart of Britain's most exclusive school, the training ground in recent years for some of the country's most disruptive and inept politicians. Today, however, we'll be discussing his dazzling novella, In the End, It Was All About Love, recently released by one of the hippest new indie publishers on the block, Rough Trade Books. Estranged from his homeland after losing his father at a young age and fleeing to Berlin from the UK to to escape the increasingly ugly and vocal British far right, we follow our narrator as he struggles to build a life with meaning in the often seductive, sometimes harsh, always fascinating German capital. Niven, Musa, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Hey. What joy. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. <laughs> it's Happy it's to great be to back. have you now. This is... Um, Kind of new for us, recording um, recording remotely. Our listeners will be used to hearing uh, a round of applause at that moment as the, the audience in the bookshop welcomes you. But unfortunately, we can't do that at the moment. So in order to give um, our listeners a... Uh, a sense of a sense of um, where you are, but also I think because both of in both of your books, the the idea of place is um, is so important. Would you just let us know both of you? Um, well, firstly, where you are at the moment. So Niven, let's begin with you. Oh, okay. So I'm in my I'm at my desk. I'm at home in the Surrey Hills. So I'm at my desk where I write everything. Um, curtains drawn in my little kind of hermit's cave. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so in the uh in the in the in the surrey hill so in the sort of the english countryside yeah it's kind of where it's kind of where you know town ends and country begins so you kind of get the mixture of kind of both you know i'm a five minute walk from the downs it's you know it gives me kind of all the space you know physical and mental space i need when i'm working so yeah it's pretty mm-hmm. good and was this the um this was the desk at which you wrote diary of a film um yeah it was yeah this is the desk where i've written say my last no actually this is a newish desk so i've written my last two books at this desk yeah but this is the okay. room i've written all my novels in okay wow. all of them yeah wow. okay all six that's okay. six and, novels uh, yeah, i know <laughs> 
says the man who has two books out in the same month. No, hey, yeah, don't deflect. Seriously. Don't deflect. <laughs> don't deflect. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, just and Musa, how about you? Where do we find you? Uh, I'm on a street corner, first floor, 10 minutes from the heart of the sort of, well, what was a kind of party slash clubbing district um, before the pandemic arrived and will be again, I'm sure, once it opens up again. I'm in East Berlin, about 15 minutes walk, about 15 minutes walk from my front door, I can touch the Berlin Wall, which is quite cool to mm-hmm. be able to say. Um, I've been here in this same flat for almost seven years now and I've written all my work here so I'm incredibly attached to this place and this space I guess and Mm -hmm. it's funny you talk about um space living I'm at my desk and I obviously that's isolating experience for all of us writers and there's a part of us maybe as writers that kind of likes the isolation to an extent maybe a bit of it but I always feel if I'm too isolated Mm -hmm. I start almost the feeling of sounds dramatic the feeling of almost like a drowning Uh and so I have to have I have to have a place within reach. For me, it's like 10 minutes walk where I can sort of see people thriving and doing their thing. Mm. I don't think I'd cope very well in greater seclusion than, than this. Mm-hmm. And are people thriving and doing their thing in Berlin at the moment? What is the, the status with the lockdown? It's weird because being a writer, you're kind of on a lockdown anyway to an extent. So you don't, and that sounds sure. weird. You're quite <laughs> trained for it. Yeah, yeah. I think people are really struggling, to be honest. You see it when you're out um, at weekends when most people are out and they're in the parks people are just sort of sitting quite close together, no masks on. And I'm not doing that to criticize them. It's saying more, it's a kind of exhaustion because sitting outside is one of the safer things you can do together. Mm. And I think people are just happy to kind of be quite literally breathing again, especially now the weather's picking mm-hmm. up. I think the weather being a bit sunnier the last few days has been a real mercy. This winter has been very, very hard on the mental health, I think, of a lot of Germans. So, mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think this lockdown here, I think you know, from Christmas onwards, I think this has definitely been the worst of the lot. I think yeah. in terms of every, you know, you, you get the sense that, you know, it's obviously it's, it's opening up here now, which is great. So you kind of feel that sense of optimism of, you know, people being out and stuff. But you also get, you do get this sort of really visceral sense of people feeling absolutely battered. Um, yeah. And not just from the whole year, I think the last three months have been really hard on everyone. Mm-hmm. I think even naturally introverted people as well. Like I remember having a lot of conversations with friends during the early stages of the first lockdown where people were sort of guiltily confessing that they, yeah, actually, you know, this is, this is kind of the lifestyle that suits me, you know? Mm. And then as the, as um, you know, the lockdowns have gone on, it just seems to be, uh, yeah, getting, uh, getting less and less the case, even for the kind of the naturally introverted people. Well, before, we get into the, well, before we get into the books, you can cut this out because it may not be relevant, but I'm, I'm just amazed there's so much enthusiasm for space travel at a time when we're basically experiencing what space travel would be like, you know, traveling vast distances, emotional distance in obscurity in isolation without human contact. This is what space travel would be like. And it's absolutely awful. If the outside world is trying to kill you, like that's, mm-hmm. that's literally a metaphor. Like, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah right, I'm amazed that like people are selling the idea of Elon Musk buying off to Mars. Like that would be absolutely bleak. Yeah. I mean, I must admit, I love the idea of space travel, but not for me. I love the fact that other people are doing it. I'm sort of, I'm not one of those kind of expeditionary writers who's going to go out and uh, <laughs> and live the extreme experience to write about it. Yeah. Well, let them fly and leave um, their taxes behind. That's what I say. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so Musa, we find you in Berlin, um, yeah. which, of course, is where um, the majority of your your book takes place. Yeah. And this seems this is an age old discussion when we talk about books with a strong sense of place, as both of your novels do, is the sort of 
the ease or otherwise of writing about a um, a place when you are in that place. So right. famously, James Joyce always said that, you know, he couldn't write about Dublin in Dublin. He had to get away in order to be able to to, to write about his city. Um, and uh, Niven, you told us that you are writing, you know, you wrote this book, which takes place in Italy, in, a, mm. in an unnamed city. And we'll come on to, to, to why it might be unnamed in a minute. But so you wrote that in Surrey, whereas Musa, you wrote your book in Berlin, sort of yeah. in, the, in the heart of the, um, the the city that you're talking about. I was wondering, could you both just talk a little bit about the the challenges or otherwise about writing in the location and then separate from it? Perhaps, Musa, you begin. Uh, right. So it's funny. So I actually took an approach that was deliberately quite Dickensian. You know, like Charles mm-hmm. Dickens used to basically write a chapter and then hand it out and then would get feedback or get circulated and he'd, write, he'd hand out the next one. I did that with this book. I've never done that before. I've never before, in the process of writing a book, let anybody know I was writing it until it was finished. And mm. I never told anybody about where it was going. And this, I completely broke that rule. I just thought, let me break my fundamental rule. So I'd go and I'd, I'd actually read out segments of it at poetry nights. Um, and then I'd go back and write more and add more. And the funny thing about this book is, it's so funny, this book has a kind of weird status because... It existed long before it came out in people's minds. Like, so I was reading it out, people would be like, "Oh, like, what's happened to that book?" And I take bits of the book, like poems, and I turn them into songs. And I'd read some mm-hmm. of the poems from the book at exhibitions as the manuscript was in process. And people were like, "Oh, where can I build off a thing?" And I was like, "We're trying to find a publisher for it." And I finished the book and sent it to a couple of people. One was a literature student. No, two were literature students. The first two to feedback, and one of them was like, "I have to meet you." And we sat down in a, in a cafe, and she said. I've annotated almost the entire thing. I'm a literature mm-hmm. student. When can we like get this and teach this? And every publisher but one rejected it. And the funny thing with this book, while it was being rejected by almost every publisher but one, shout out to Rough Trade, I love them for that. Because they couldn't work out if it was official, it's too short. Is it is it fiction? Is it poetry? Is it prose? What is it? Is it real? Is it not? They couldn't work it out. And I was like, well, there's a spirit traveling time doctor, there's a spirit traveling doctor in it. Like, it's not all fact. <laughs> but anyway, point being. <laughs> in terms of writing it it was written the thing that kept me going when this book was being rejected was its relationship with the city mm-hmm. and the reaction it was getting from people in the city like for example one quick thing i'll say want to illustrate that i wrote one segment called how to eat cake in berlin which is a very particular analysis of which i'll read out for this podcast it's a very particular analysis of how place can be soothing and how actually cake shops and cafes can be a place of rest and repose and heartbreak and regret How to eat cake in Berlin. The best time to eat cake in Berlin is a weekday afternoon, say 2pm on Thursday. You can't do it much earlier because you won't have earned it. You have to get the timing just right. If you get to the cafe for 3pm, then when you finish, you will emerge into a swarm of angry and homeward bound commuters. The best place to eat cake, well, that varies. It depends what you're looking for. If you want to go somewhere where you can pass out after the arrival of the sugar rush, and there's that quiet spot in your neighbourhood, the one where the atmosphere is almost supernaturally gentle, where, even when it was full and busy one evening, you were still able to write a short story without being distracted. That's the same cafe which has a dog who seems to spend 95% of his time in a state of hibernation, slumped on a shelf just behind the bar, and who only wakes when another dog enters his realm. Then, he's almost on his hind legs with fury, and won't stop roaring until the door closes behind the startled and rapidly retreating invader. That's also the cafe where the toddler 
babbles at you in Spanish and tries to impress you by holding up a series of nearby objects, waiting until you nod in approval before presenting a new one. A salt shaker, a menu, a sugar bowl. You are always impressed. This place is as tranquil as your first girlfriend's bedroom at university, and when you fall asleep here, no one nudges you awake. If you want to eat cake in a place where you can dream, then you wander down the street to a cafe which also serves salty stew and cups of hot chocolate so thick you can almost stand up a spoon in them. This cafe is where you will spend many afternoon hours gazing out of the window and planning new adventures. It is the place where you are sitting, where you hear from a, a dear friend for the last time, where he sent you a text message from his deathbed to remind you that, on that particular day, you were doing exactly what you were meant to be doing with your life, not worrying about making money, or what everyone else is achieving in their careers, just being. If you want to remember him, you go and eat there. If you want to eat cake in a place that reminds you that love is possible, go to that cafe across town where they drown each slice of apple pie in whipped cream, that one whose back room is filled with 70s-style sofas and which is graced with a small cabaret stage. In this cafe, over cake, love twice came close. Or, to feel similar, catch a tram 15 minutes from your flat, where you spent a Sunday afternoon sharing sake torta on a first date with someone who understood you. If you want cake for its own sake, which of course is reason enough, then go three stops down the line for a serving of marzipan moan, its thick speckled layers of sponge dissolve in the moment they touch your tongue. If you want cake which rewards your loyalty, then go to the cupcake store nearby, where every week you get a free helping because you are in there so often, and where you are just beginning to build up the courage to ask out the woman who you'd seen working there for years, and then she left her job. To eat cake in Berlin properly, never reveal where you eat. If you must, then guard your preferred locations with the jealousy of an insecure lover. If you are feeling a little more generous, then leave hints as to where you've been eating, perhaps the odd photo on social media, so that the keenest detectives among your friends can figure it out. As ridiculous as it seems, not only to you, but eventually to your dentist, cake has become your sanctuary. It is your ritual. Each year, after you've completed your tax return, you catch the underground train to Mitter and you mark the occasion with a dessert that costs no more than four euros, a restrained way to celebrate yet another 12 months as a freelancer. Cake punctuates your artistic career. Each mouthful is a milestone. Whilst this town offers many escapes, many vices, yours is icing. So I wrote that segment and a friend of mine moved to Berlin and she was having a tough time and she was getting stressed out. So I gave it to her. And a few months later, she approached me in the street and said, without your knowledge, I gave this to I printed this off and gave it to two friends of mine I thought might need it. And they, independently of each other, took it to their therapist in Berlin and said, this is exactly how I feel. We need to talk about this. So this book was basically circulating. Wow. It's been, yeah, it's been in the world for like three years before it even came out. Mm -hmm. And what did it's that give you as you were writing it? Sorry. What did that give you, no, when no, you as you were writing it? To actually write it and then have the bravery to share it with people and then listen to that feedback. What did that give you as you were writing it? Did you listen to that feedback or yes. did you just need to have it out there? It was incredible strength. It was weird because it wasn't feedback where I was like, I'm on the right track because I've never felt so sure of something as this book. Like when the edits came back, mm. there were almost, there were probably, there's probably less than two paragraphs of edits in the entire book. This is, this book is almost entirely unblemished. And when my agent received it, she sent it out. She submitted it right away with no edits and she's an editor. It had almost <laughs> like, it took the form it was meant to take because every part of it is so, it's just from Considered. the gut. 
Yeah. So once, but weirdly enough, I was reading it. I was reading your stuff actually. Um, I was reading your book, Diary of a Film, and the same attention to detail, and the same fearlessness about it being uninteresting. A lot of people are afraid to be uninteresting because it's slow moving, right? But the way you peel back the layers, see, like in the early scenes, you're like filleting. You buy the bag of, or the narrator buys the bag of fish and then sets it aside. Mm. It's weird because I was stuck with that. When reading your book, I felt like your prose in this book feels like filleting a fish. Like first removing the scales and then stripping away. You know when you like you're, you're peeling off the the, the, um, the skin from the, yeah, the flesh? Yeah, 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 sure. And you just tuck the tip of the knife in and you peel it back. That's what your novel feels like to me. Yeah, like, I mean, that's true. I'm, I'm all about the layers, that's for sure. <laughs> You are, but not everyone is. And it's funny because I, you know, we read a lot of books, both of us, and a lot of writers aren't like that. It's not a criticism. It's just like, what I love about your book is you're unafraid of pacing. And that was the thing I had. If you, if you see my early inspirations as writers, they were all people that were like crash bang wallop. They were Mm -hmm. like writers that wanted the kind of, um, sort of hyperactive style of writing, but almost trying to be the smartest kid in the room. Whereas the way that I write now I think it's much better. It's much more mature. Um, so yeah, that's a kind of a long answer to a short question, but that's where I ended up. It's 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 interesting what you say just on on the on the subject. Firstly, of the the form of your book, and then uh, what you what you, your comments you made about about Niven's work actually, because both of these, from a kind of book selling perspective, is something that we hear a lot from the publishing world about. Sort of a that something has to be easy to describe, easy to pitch. And the second thing is that, you know, a, a novel has to grab you sort of in the first 10 seconds or it's, you know, it's, it's not going to grab you at all. You know, it has to have that kind of crash bang wallop thing. And from a bookseller's perspective, that's not at all what we what we experience. In fact, like when when a bookseller loves a book, they don't they don't need to have the sort of the elevator pitch of it. The fact that something has uh, a strange form you know, so that we don't know how to classify it as fiction or poetry or the fact that, you know, if uh somebody says oh what's the book about and you can't actually deliver them sort of a 10 second uh sort of capsule response to that question isn't a problem for us and it's i think it's interesting that sometimes between the sort of the 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 publishing industry and book selling there's this kind of sometimes a little bit of a sort of a, a misunderstanding about what is it what it is it is that gets uh yeah. you know convinces people to, to 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 buy to buy the books um niffin about uh, the sense of place, the the, the Italian city. Um, mm. So, first of all, as I said, sort of um, as I teased a little bit in the introduction, the sort of the the narrator we 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 only know of as Maestro. The Italian city is not uh, named, mm. and indeed, the um, we're given some sort of some light indications about where the uh, whether whether the, the director may be from. Yeah. But again, that is not sort of particularly um, specified. Now, obviously, uh, an author does not withhold information in that way unless he, he or she has a specific purpose um, for doing so. But I'm particularly interested in the in the uh, the fact that the Italian city went unnamed because um, the little I know of Italy, the, the cities are, are so distinct, and for each filled with their own sort of individual character. Yeah, and I'm just curious so. as to as to why um, why you chose to to withhold that from the reader. Um, I think I think basically, the more I write, the less I feel the obligation to reveal. Uh, you know, the whole mm. the, the whole point of of um, 
you know, making creative work is your, you know, you're literally, you know, you're creating your own world. So you choose what to show and what to reveal. And actually, I'm really interested in creating ideas of place that give you an idea of place without being a specific place. Does that make sense? So, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it's about it's about a film, a, a director who flies to a film festival, you know, Noto flies to a film festival and it's premiere a new film. Um, and I was very interested in Italy for a number of reasons. From a film point of view, just um, the country's long association with, you know, auteurs flying in from all corners of the world to shoot films in Italy and to, to show in Italy. Obviously, Italy has an amazing film culture, has an amazing film festival culture. So, it will make you think a little bit about Venice, the Venice Film Festival, but the film's not set in Venice. Um, so, you know, it, it's really about creating a sense of uh, a, an Italian city that's really an amalgam of kind of lots of places, not just in Italy, but kind of around Europe. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not a touristy book though it's a book that you know because of the times when really allows you the kind of scope to travel it's very much about being um a in an artificial environment b being a foreigner in a kind of a place that is partly known and partly unknown um mm -hmm. so I, I found i could do that without very basic signifiers. I mean, in the same way that actually I created that same world in New York with the um, with this brutal house. Um, you know, it's set in New York, so you have it's based on what you as a reader know about being in a in a in a big city, but without saying on mm -hmm. you know on on Fifth Avenue on this street or on that street. So again, for me, I'm trying to you know explore character and and you know a sort of unravelling of of character and action I flew to the Italian city of B to attend the film festival in late March. Our entry into the competition, a liberal adaptation of William Maxwell's novel The Folded Leaf, had been officially confirmed, and I was expected to participate in three days of interviews and panels to promote the release, with a jury screening on the second evening. My co-producer Gabriella had arrived at the start of the week to prepare, also the cast, who were busy hawking other projects about which I was both curious and jealous. It's hard to think of actors, good actors, as anything other than your own once you've worked with them. I knew they'd be expecting me to see their films while I was there, wanting their betrayals to be blessed, and I anticipated that it would hurt as, what, as much as watching them with other lovers, a feeling especially pronounced when the new film was still warm on my lips. Eight months had passed since the production had wrapped and I missed their company, particularly the two leads, Lorraine and Tom, who had a youthful ease that blended seamlessly into our production family. Nothing of the film could be changed at this point and I'd made my peace with it, absorbing the heightened pressure of meeting strict deadlines in order to screen in this competition. There were other festivals through the spring and summer, but this was the one that mattered to me, having previously brought me luck and with it a sense of calm. But for all my confidence, I arrived in the city feeling apprehensive. The trip had the air of both a working holiday and a funeral. There was excitement for the next stage in the film's journey, one in which I envisaged only good things, but also a finality, for with it my participation would cease. It was for Gabby, the actors and their publicists, to take the baton and run for the glory they dreamed of. I could return to my hometown of S, regroup and retreat into my ideas. 
My first impulse on arriving at the airport was to have the car take me directly to the hotel. So keen was I to see Laureen and Tom again, to hear their voices and to feel their breath. I wanted to suffer their tender, respectful mockery, typically young Americans who'd been brought up well, but I was also aware that this would be the last time that I'd play their loving gods and I wished to delay that. They'd not yet seen a completed film, so therefore a realm existed where they could not be disappointed in me. It wasn't the first time that I explicitly sought the love of my actors. There's an almost supernatural aura of openness, risk-taking and safety present in the shooting of some films that does not exist in others. As always, we've been tested pressured by a tight shooting schedule and insufficient money, but the folded leaf was nourished by magic. It informed the breaking light of dawn shooting and held its power over us until the end of the day. Drunk on its potency, it interrupted my sleep for much of the principal photography, so keen was I not to lose this holy atmosphere, fearing the mist would clear on waking. I'm not a superstitious man, there's no room for the Ouija in filmmaking, but we were all touched by the same feeling and simply wished this gift to stay. It was something I hoped was honoured in the final cut, and by which Laurie's and Tom's faith in me would be justified, as mine already was with them. Putting you in a place that's very strong, so you feel enveloped by that place, but you're not bogged down with those details of, oh, okay, I read that book, so now I need to go to that cafe he described, mm. or that square they walked in. It isn't about that. It's about putting, you know, actually, when I when I write books now, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about, and I've said this a few times, about sort of generosity and what, I, mm. what I'm trying to, what, what I love about reading particularly, and I read a lot, is I like to read a book and not know when when I started that book, where I'm going to end up mentally when I finished it in terms of where I go next. And those mm -hmm. kind of, you know, those sort of wormholes, you know, those those hooks the writers give you, whether it's about a sense of place that you want to explore because you love that book or or references or whatever. And this, this book is very much about a sense of place, but also it's about a layering of references. It's about films, it's about books, it's about art and, and the people who make them. So... Mm -hmm. I think you get more from this kind of story. And also because the book int intentionally is very dreamlike. So mm. yeah. you're in a sense of place, but you don't need to be bogged down by knowing the exact place and the exact street because that takes it away. You know, I'm not writing documentaries. You know, I'm not writing nonfiction. I'm sure. writing fiction. So I think about those things a lot more. I mean, when I first started writing, I did feel the need to, yes, I do need to name characters. And now I just feel, you know, and I, I started this with this brutal house where, you know, half the book is narrated in a group form by a group of people. You never know their names. And for me, uh -huh. that's how it should be. And, 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 and although every book I write is a reaction to the last one in terms of sort of, you know, thematically in terms of style, one of the things I probably did carry over was this new reluctance to give everyone a name. I don't think you really need it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so funny. No, it's just like such similar headspaces. Like, I have written these two books, it's 350, 360 pages. There's only one character named in, in all 360 pages or whatever it is. For the same reason, like, names feel at some level, if you're trying to explore universal themes and get to the heart of something and be truly immersive, names can, like, get you hung up. Like, why have they chosen that name? But if you want to create a universal experience, you look at Aesop's Fables, for example. Mm. when you've got like just creatures um or if you look at like for example like wildlife programs for example this book that i've written about boarding school which is a, i won't name it because it's not about that but the book about boarding school people are like oh why haven't you named people that did stuff at your boarding school and i was like well because english political discourse absolutely loves naming names because then it can be cathartic and they can like sort of rant about oh this person that person and then not actually look at structures 
if you don't use names, people are forced to look at dynamics like interpersonal dynamics and structural dynamics of society. That is much more interesting to me. Yeah, you're giving sure. people a framework to interrogate. So when you, even in your book, you're talking. There's an incredible when you don't have um, names, you focus on definitions. You focus on environments, atmospheres. That incredible thing you do in your book, the definition of artist, is one of the best definitions I've ever seen. I actually wrote it down. An artist is someone with a deeply felt need to create work in order to survive. That is perfection. And that stands out more because there aren't names of places and shops mm-hmm. and streets. You're just left with these kind of... um Taking names out is like driving through the night and then only having the occasional inn and the occasional street light. You focus so much more on that because everything else has been left in the kind of like warm darkness. And that's what I feel reading your work. Mm. Yeah. Here is the lesson. And in fact, Sorry. I mean, you, um, in, in, in your book, Musa, you do it in a sort of, uh, in, in, in quite a different way as well, though. As you said, like characters are, it's not only the, the narrator, for example, is not named. But in fact, the book is essentially written in the second person. It's yes. uh, the book is written as you. Yes. Um, and it, it's it's interesting because when picking it up and, and putting it down, um, I think I read it in about three or four sessions. That had that had different effects on me actually. So when I when I first encountered it, it felt very much as if um, the narrator was addressing himself. That it was sort of like it was sort of a, a sort of a, a reflective uh, meditation, uh, almost kind of yeah, trying to trying to get to the bottom of something by uh, tell by telling him about himself. Other times when I picked it up, I felt almost that the the character of the narrator was projected onto me, like I was being asked by the writer to embody the uh, hmm. the, the 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 life of this of this. Of this person in Berlin, um, would for you do you, do you, would you come down on one side or the other of those, or, or were both of those for you kind of legitimate responses? To oh, the, listen, the text? All, all responses are legitimate, but the intended response, mm-hmm. which I think it connected with a few people on this level, because everyone connects differently with narrating styles, and you always take a risk. So this was a massive risk to write it this way, mm-hmm. but I wanted, to, I thought, by taking this risk, I'd make it more universal because people always talk about take a mile in my walk a mile in my shoes. I thought, okay, well. I'll let you try and do it. So I'll take a black queer experience, which is based largely on mine, but some parts are embellished or changed or whatever. And I thought, okay, start with the universal theme. So start with anyone that arrives in Berlin or anyone traveling to a new city. And then over time, so give, begin with universal experiences, arriving in the city, finding a place to live. Everyone can relate to that, right? Everyone's done a, a flat hunt. Everyone's been in love. Everyone's had a breakup. And then start introducing elements that are different to the majority of experiences of most people reading it. And by the time you do that, people are emotionally invested if they stay with it. And people start to, if not live it, they start to like experience the discomfort at a closer range because it's like they can't look away. And this is nothing different to what people do when they play computer games like Grand Theft Auto or Halo. People do this the whole time. People have been like, oh, mm-hmm. why, why have you chosen this style? I was like, well, literally that's computer games. That's any computer game where you've basically faced as like a first person shooter. And then so when someone experiences a racist incident, they feel the discomfort and like white people have written to me being like, oh my God, like I was there and I was like, I was there and I wasn't there and I felt it. I felt it. I wasn't you or the narrator, but I was in it. And I was like, bingo, bingo. Mm. And then people are writing to me going, this book broke me open 
Um, I was in tears reading this bit, that bit, not because I was a great, I'm not flattering myself, a great writer, but because I'd expressed something which they had felt and not seen on a page before in that way. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was the deliberate technique. It is, I find it very interesting actually, um, in terms of readers' responses, or not just readers actually, just, you know, also in terms of publishers, um, to responses when you kind of, go against the kind of default of writing either in the first or the third person and you know my natural instinct is always to sort of go the other way so you know one of the reasons I really felt kinship with your book is because you know in terms of how it's written is you know my fourth novel all the days and nights was half of it was written in the second person Mm. um you know it was about you know an 80 year old artist who's, who's talking about her husband who's just left her as she's dying to to look at the paintings they've painted together and all this kind of stuff um but it was from that that dynamic of i wanted a very universal kind of you that was both specific to their experience but also um allowed you as a reader to be immersed in a different way and i remember when i handed that book in you know people love that book but everyone's like oh it's really feels really weird writing about you um and you know i do i then you start to think about, well, there should be more books written like that. And, you know, um, Mm. for anyone who's listening to this, you know, Julia um, Otsuka's Buddha in the Attic is an incredible novel about the Japanese-American experience sort of mid-century, particularly in terms of women who travelled from Japan to America to... um, for arranged marriages and that that novella is entirely written um, using you it's incredible and mm. also the scottish novelist ron butlin who's an incredible writer who wrote a, an amazing novella early 90s called the sound of your voice which is about alcoholism um and its effects on a family again using you so you know there's there's loads of great writers who use it It'd be interesting to see more people doing it but you just think actually with with the kind of variety of work out there it's interesting as readers you do get this sort of initial sense of resistance because it feels odd but it shouldn't feel odd do you know why can i can i jump on why that feels odd a friend of mine kind of um attacked me metaphorically not sort of physically i hasten to add we had a zoom conversation it's like i've been reading your book and she said you know i just don't think you know you put so much out there and this and that it was very sort of spiky and i was like okay wow that was a bit bit taken aback by that and then she sent me a text message a few days later and she said i'm really sorry it's because your book really confronted me because it's so vulnerable i felt very confronted and it made me look at things i didn't want to look at yet and i wasn't ready to process because i went through some really tough stuff and your book made me face that i didn't like it and i lashed out at you and i'm sorry and i'm like interesting it's okay like but the and i even when the book got reviewed um early on a couple of the reviews were quite were very personal and actually a little bit nasty and um Mm -hmm. I people were like oh my god like Musa like I'm oh, this this review is really mean I was like let it pass I said I said look this is an emotional book it will get emotional reactions people are looking at this book and like I was even interviewed about it and one person was like why did you say all this this interview was like why did you say this why did you say that because they themselves had gone through those things and I was like well because that's what's going on and it's like yeah but there's so much shame around this and I said well that's why I wrote mm. it because it's liberating three writers attacked the book and it's really interesting they did that because they were and they all to varying degrees were like it's because you've shown me something i didn't want to see in myself it's fascinating and also and also what i think is interesting is if you'd written it in the third person what it allows um readers is 
a sense of putting a wall up because you can you can admit as soon as you write something in the third person it automatically feels like a construct um and the irony is of course you is a massive construct if you're going to write a whole novel using you that in itself is a construct but because it's it's a very direct address it automatically feels more personal so as a reader you will feel confronted interesting yeah absolutely um (laughs) breaking the the fourth wall Sorry, <laughs> the format that I'm most used to um, encountering you in, and this is going to lower the tone a little bit, but is uh, as a kid particularly was reading in game books in the kind of choose your own adventure, and I oh, think this kind okay. of feeds. No, in that's the point. That's much... why. That's why I did yeah. it. That's it. That's it. No, no, no. That's it. That's literally okay. it. Yeah. And but it but in case in this case, the you has no choice. It's not like if you want to do this, you go to this page. Yeah. This if you want to go this, do this. You go to page seven or whatever. It's really the case of you are in this and. I'm not giving you the choice. You are going to experience this as uh, as I, you know, the writer, um, determined that you experience yes, it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Authoritarianism. Now, <laughs> <laughs> um, both of the, the the narrators are artists in your books, and um, also Niven in your novel. There are other artists as well. So you, we we have Cosima, um, mm. the the person that your narrator meets, who was a writer, and through Cosima, we meet Bruno, who was Cosima's uh, boyfriend, uh, the graffiti artist. Yeah. Um, but the particularly the, the 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 film director. I mean, he's somebody the maestro, as everyone calls him. He is somebody who has reached a certain uh, status, yeah. a certain accomplishment, a certain uh, respect in his uh, in in his artistic endeavor. Um, whereas Musa, in your book, the 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 struggles are very much uh for that sort of that sort of respect that sort of recognition i mean the, the sort of the 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 writer is a sort of an accomplished artist but has not necessarily received the kind of the the plaudits uh from from his peers or from 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 yeah. society um and I'd, I'd just be interested if if the two of you could just talk about that and also maybe responding to sort of like different stages of your of your own careers as well because i think every writer kind of goes through that sort of that stage of feeling uh unfairly overlooked and uh and then when the recognition comes it doesn't necessarily come in the in the 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 joyful way that um that one might have hoped um well i mean this book is very much motivated by a wanted to write a book about film which i've wanted to do for a long time you know i studied film at goldsmiths and you know cinema has had you know as big an impact on my you know on my work as literature has um and you know one of the things that you you know you earlier you said earlier Musa, about you know not being afraid about pacing and all that kind of stuff really comes from making films when I was really really young and the grammar of filmmaking um and you know I'm, I'm not interested in, in telling a conventional story so I think I think a lot when I'm writing not only about you know all, all the kind of influences that come to you as, as, you're, as you're putting the book together, but very much in terms of the grammar of, of filmmaking in terms of, you know, having, um, you know, very open frames and stuff that's very slow moving. You know, that's mm. that's always, you know, that's one of the things that probably links all my work in a lot of ways. Just uh, to jump in there, Niven, because I want to, I, I want to make sure I get a chance to say this, is one thing that really struck me is that often you find in books, writers will sort of, 
they'll want to essentially write about what it's like to be a writer. But, you know, maybe we don't want another book about a writer writing about writing. So they'll choose, I don't know, oh, he can be a painter or he can yeah. be, I don't know, a sculptor or something or, or a filmmaker. And yet one thing that really struck me was how embedded you were as a writer in the world of film actually this was this was not the writer's experience we were we were living this was the filmmaker's experience yeah, and that it, was just it, something it, i found very it, convincing yeah it, well, it's, it comes from my you know my obsession with filmmaking and thinking about the lives mm-hmm. of the great auteurs and you know just going back to my fourth novel all the days and nights which was about portrait painting when i finished that novel i felt there was something really unfinished and i wasn't sure how i was going to address it but i felt that I wanted to stop thinking about novels being their own separate vessels, but thinking about sort of grouping work together. Um, but I didn't know how, what that was or how I was going to address it. And then obviously I wrote this brutal house. And then when I started writing this, I thought the penny dropped. So actually, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to write a cycle of novels that are all about makers mm. and creating art, but addressing it in different ways. And actually seeing how my perspective on that changes in the, you know, between this novel and that, the fourth novel, like the seven years between those two novels. Um, so it is, it's a, it's a book about, um, and also, it's a very for me. It's a very uncynical book about actually creating mm. work. And you know, he it was important that he was an auteur and not just a director who's a director for hire. It's someone who writes and creates all his own work, so he's responsible for all of it, and he's sort of committed to this kind of lifetime vocation of creating work. So it's really about a novel about being in a state of flux. You've got someone who's finished a film, is about to present it, is naturally nervous and unsure about it, but it's also in this sort of grey zone of well what comes next and it's really about you know an exploration of where ideas come from so he meets this woman who's central to the novel Cosima and they're a similar age they're in their 50s so they have a a sort of connection that goes um, that crosses borders you know it's, it's very much a history of kind of the social history of Europe and how the changes in you know geopolitics and social history in Europe really pushed forward a generation of filmmakers from the 70s onwards. You know, I was thinking a lot about Fassbinder um, and Almodovar, but then also Visconti and Pasolini a lot. I mean, you know, the influence of Pasolini really sort of um, weighed, was sort of sitting on my was on my mind a lot when I was writing it. So, um, so you've kind of got... A, a, well, the book is basically an, an exploration of a, an accumulation of a lifetime experience of making work, but still being curious and mm. um and wanting to push forward but also being aware that you can make mistakes and you've got someone who seems like a really paternal figure that people around him are incredibly loyal to but as the novel progresses you realize that he is really capable of he's also capable of of misjudging and making mistakes and that's kind of one of the things the book explores that's funny because mm. you unravel him, don't you? Because at the stage I'm at, I'm still at the point where he's the all-seeing and the wise and like he's looking at things with the editor's eye and he's almost like sort of looking at Bruno's work with a, a tender eye and an affection. And you're like, this person, you know, he is, you kind of construct him as the maestro and then unravel that and I'm still to see the unraveling. Um, in my in my case, uh, the book that I wrote, a lot of that was based on my experience because I'd written a sci-fi novel, very ambitious sci-fi novel and it had been rejected and... At that point, I was like, what if I'm not actually good enough? What if I'm not good enough to, to, to be a writer and to do this properly? Because I've been doing it for a while, but I was like, I haven't had a breakthrough. And I thought, let me just write about, instead of starting another novel, why don't I just write about how this feels? How it feels to have made the biggest gamble of your life and it not to work out. 
what do you take solace in? If if you think that you if you think you're a loser, if you think you haven't made anything of your life, what do you do then? What are you left with? And the book is about where you find strength, really, um, as a person of color, as a queer person of color, in a new city, in a different city. Where do you find strength? And it's about friendship, redemption, love. And the funny thing is, actually, I heard from someone just two days ago who said it's really strange reading this seeing the career that you've built for yourself it's really weird because you look at it and like what you're doing your podcasting and your your books are out and the coverage you're getting and this and that it's so strange it's like this all happens just before your career takes off all of it so you read the book and like it's weird I said it's the strange thing is when I finished this book I put everything into it and my agent loved it it took another year for anything to happen. So in that time, I wrote mm. the memoir about boarding school and the other stuff. And then everything, weirdly enough, all took off at once. But the point being, the really great thing about the book, and what makes it feel authentic is that I had kind of given up on any thought of any kind of success. And at the point of writing, I was like, this is where I find solace. It was actually my 40th birthday party where I was talking to some friends and they organized a surprise party for me. I looked around this room and this room is full of people. The video's on Instagram somewhere. And I walk into this this, this uh, cafe, one of my favorite cafes, and the room erupts with noise. And I look around the room and I think to myself, even if I never really get anywhere as an artist, this is what matters. And it was so nice to have drawn that conclusion before anything happened in a material sense with the art, because it was a true sense of, I am good enough. And the book is about being, like, being it, thinking and feeling i'm genuinely believing i am good enough and by the end of it the narrator based on you know a lot of my experience with obvious some obvious differences has come to the point of i'm enough whatever comes from now mm. i am enough mm. it's interesting because the the way you phrase that i mean we had, uh, we were talking about we were talking about art and writing and recognition but we could have equally been talking about uh love as well because this is the other exactly um, exactly the other sort of struggle of um, of, of of your of your narrator is this sort of finding. Um, it's not it's not even a case of you know finding the one or finding the relationship, but just kind of, I guess, coming to terms with what love means to him and what uh, what uh, what he wants from from love as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the ability to to love, like our hearts are. How do I say this? I'm astonished by the bravery of love, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, love gets a tough rap, and you know, I think partly because it's just been commoditized and endless songs and all the rest of it in films, but love at its core is such an act of bravery. And the bravery to keep going back despite disappointment is something that every artist keenly feels and every lover keenly feels. The ability to get back out there after having your heart shattered, you know, which I've had, which many have had, like my heart's been absolutely shattered and I was speaking to a friend and they were like oh my goodness like then it's you don't do this right you don't do that right and i said isn't it funny how it's always the per- the lover's fault mm-hmm. what if the society isn't right like look at all the terrible people that fall in love and are with equally terrible people like when i say terrible <laughs> people people there, there was a woman that came a singer and i have to add, add very quickly what i mean by that there was a story recently on social media they put out oh my goodness what a fascinating story of this like this nazi era singer She'd lived in the 1920s and she died early this century. And she'd been a full-on Nazi collaborator and a string of long affairs, a very lucrative career after the war. And no one talked about her sort of Nazi days. And she was like going out with like a leading officer and she was fully complicit. She wasn't like 
having an affair with him to pass the time and to keep herself safe. She was fully engaged with it. And I was thinking, look, like, that's, no one looks at that person and goes, oh, like, well, you were the wrong person and you found love because you're the wrong person. Sometimes terrible people find each other. And I said, isn't it funny that in a world like of full of harassment and abuse and full of people who've had genuine emotional damage, it's still the person who's experienced the damage. It's still their fault. They haven't found that connection. What if it's the world's fault? And so the book is really a kind of, it's what I call radical vulnerability. So we live in an era of fake news and artifice. I said this before to friends, like what is the antidote to a world based upon artifice is, is vulnerability. And confession inspires confession. So by writing the most confessional novella I could, the most confessional memoir I could, it will invite confession to other people. And people have criticized me for like not drawing firm conclusions in my political work, in my fiction, in my nonfiction. I said, no, the conclusion is the conversation we're having now. That was the point of it. The anxiety in the reviewer. To induce anxiety in a professional reviewer is in some sense exactly what I was aiming at where you can't divorce yourself. Yeah, you can't You can't be objective. This objectivity is a real, I think it's a cancer, to be honest, a metaphorical cancer, like I'm objective. No, I don't. I want you to feel so emotionally engaged in what I've produced that you have to respond to it in a visceral way. Visceral work invites visceral responses. And that is my agenda with everything I've written this year. Hmm. And, and, and Niven, I think um, something that, that feeds into that is, uh, I think, I can't remember the exact word. I think you used to talk, you talked about like wanting to write a sort of a sincere book. I'm not sure yes, sincere was quite yes, the word. Used. Uncynical. And, and uncynical. Uncynical, right. And, and that's what we also find with the, the, the relationship at the heart of it. So, you know, the, the maestro, he's in, he's gone to this uh, film festival. He's being feted. He's having, you know, this kind of experience away from his family. And yet, we also, you know, it's, it's not a sort of, it's not a major part of the novel in in a, in a sense of kind of you know the space it occupies but the the moments when either he talks to his husband and his son or mm. thinks about them mm. um there's something very very sort of uncynical about that i thought and that's something i found very refreshing that we don't often find in uh in novels and i think particularly novels about artists is this sense of a sort of a you know i'm not he's not in necessarily a perfect relationship but a kind of a stable supportive nurturing yeah relationship of which he is unashamed as well because i think that's also sometimes the thing with artists it's sort of you want to be seen as somebody who is perhaps uh you know a little bit flighty a little bit promiscuous a little bit sort yeah. of like you know well, I'm, uh, I, yeah free of these kind of commitments i guess well i i, I mean I, I knew when i started writing it, it was going to be about uh it was going to be seen for the 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 filmmaker process the creative process would be seen through a queer lens first of all but what i didn't want to do even though i've been thinking a lot about people like fassender and pasolini and visconti was that i didn't want to go down that kind of cliched route of some really miserable um artist at all and i really wanted to write mm-hmm. about queer joy and kind of intergenerational queer joy so you've got you know filmmaking is very much you know creating work is about is also about having sort of you know, a sense of emotional bigamy because you have to make yourself very vulnerable to create work and, and more so, no more so than I think in creating films because you have to be very vulnerable around a group of people 
you know, to mm-hmm. the the difference between writing a novel and creating a world in film is two different things. You have to physically make that world happen. It's kind of different. And to do that in in a lifetime's vocation of making films means you have to commit to a group of people. So he he has a group of people that he's worked with for years. So you get this sense of he has two families. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, what what sort of made sort of explicit in the books where the husband says, go to the film festival, do that. But then when you come back to us, you are we own you you know so he he happily gives himself to that life because and also it's sort of a reflection of the kind of queer experience of people my age and particularly people older so this guy's in his mid-50s so who've been through that cycle of fighting for kind of equality and equity and visibility and um you know allowing themselves to have that kind of experience and then living through you know the AIDS crisis um etc but to come through that and think actually what I do want and this isn't for every artist at all but for him he you know and him and also Cosima both speak of this and it's sort of like you know this is kind of what I fought for the right to be able to have a husband and have have a child of her own but also to do the work that I love and to feel free so that was kind of important to get kind of those things across and to kind of you know and to kind of create that life as kind of as in a way that i felt was as honest as possible and not not mawkish but just kind of very uncynical very kind of honest mm-hmm. love it love it and i love the kind of now, emotional guys, oh, sorry yeah sorry no we, we're no no, of, no. Yeah. no go, go go for it sorry. I, I just, yeah i just love the way you make space for all of that niven um the detail when like my husband and my child um and how I, they'd, res- I'd res- they'd resisted me editing away from home because they thought there was still a gypsy in me. I love that so much because, you know, that person would have come an age where there was an overlap between homosexuality being legal and illegal. And so there's yeah, the no, kind of... totally. You know, and that cross-generational... And also like, because, yeah. because the reference is that he's probably an Eastern European director. So you get yeah. the double kind of unpacking of, yes. you know... Yes, uh, 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 You know, a, a totally... Um, you know, probably from, you know, there's, you won't have got to this bit, but, you know, they go to a church for a minute and there's sort of religious references through it because obviously they're in Italy. So you get the, you know, in, you get this sense of someone who who's rejected, you know, a religious and repressive background and kind of come through that, but still has that connection to things like the church because, you, well, you'll see as you read it. Um, yeah, but it's very, it's very paternal in that way. You know, it's familial, it's about queer joy, but it's also quite paternal, you know, in terms of not only his relationship with his husband and child, but also, you know, there's two actors who, who are the lead actors in the film who fly over and they have a relationship. You know, the book, the film that, that I talk about in the book is obviously a retelling of a liberal retelling of Maxwell's novel, The Folded Leaf, which is sort of an unquiet queer love story. So you've got a, a situation where two actors, um, the dynamic off on screen um, sort of transposes off screen. So they're in the throes of a very early stage of their relationship. And again, he's very paternal with them because he's trying to, you know, he feels very protective over them. So that kind of, again, it kind of carries through across the whole book, I think, this sort of nurturing. Gosh, it. I love this. Do you know, actually, before we, um, before I forget uh, very quickly, you talked about cycles of novels and I want to pick that up because I, I did that as well. Like with um, this other book, you know, the private school book, there's, an, there's a massive Easter egg that if you've read this book, it will be there. Um, <laughs> and I love Fantastic. doing it. And like, I, I've also started doing a thing where I start writing multiple pieces of work at once. I used to finish something and then like start something new. But actually right now, as we speak, there's like 
a novel and a half out there that are that I was writing alongside these two books, and they they're kind of in conversation with other parts of these books, and that's I think you know yeah like Balzac would do the kind of human comedy I think, and you have characters mm. coming in and out, and I I love that to be honest because it's like you know the sort of cinematic universes they have in Marvel. I'm yeah. obsessed with the idea of creating kind of cinematic universe where you're like, oh, we've seen that poet before, we've seen that character before. There's a character in the book, the only named character, Dr. Opong, he pops up in something else that I've written. It's all very mm. deliberate. It's all very deliberate to like kind of sprinkle things in. Oh, was that accidental? No, it's all, it's all by design. <laughs> Sorry, it's you're, the authoritarian's of, coming out. <laughs> it's, it's, also, it's also kind of an overt sort of acknowledgement of something which I guess exists in the earth of kind of, of every writer, but it's sort of, it's 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 strange because it's rarely acknowledged, and each work is sort of supposed to be considered as a sort of discrete uh, entity in a way. But in fact, um, yeah, like it, if you if you read the entire uh, for a writer, you will find not necessarily those similar named characters. Maybe they're particularly scrupulous in order to to separate them, but you will find recurring themes. You'll find yeah. recurring. Terms you know, when of I phrase, think of you know like Muriel Spark writing a series of novels in Italy. You know, those mm-hmm. kind of things really interest me. I think one of the things I wouldn't do is once I've written a novel and, you know, and a world and those people, I don't want to go back to those, that world and those people particularly. So yeah. what I'm looking for is kind of what is it in my own kind of curiosity that I'm interested in carrying forward? You know, I'm not interested in kind of sequels per se, but I'm interested yeah. in, you know, the more you write work, you start thinking about kind of your body of work and how, not only how it's read, but also how you think about it. So for me, mm-hmm. the kind of grouping of novels is sort of an attempt to kind of understand that without committing yeah. to repeating myself, because my natural inclination is still to kind of always move as far away as, as I can from the last novel. So that's very interesting when people, because obviously this Doe film has come out, you know, quite quickly after this Brutal House. So this Brutal House is still quite, fresh in people's memories so it's very interesting getting feedback from readers and also from friends who are like you know one of the first things is like wow this is completely you know upended my expectation of what would follow this brutal house and I kind of like that yeah now uh, now guys uh, I think like we could go on for hours it's fascinating <laughs> to me particularly how like these two books so stylistically different have so many uh, sort of points of interaction and ways they can dialogue with each other but I before we finish I wouldn't I uh, want to leave this without talking about food, particularly because I think, um, Musa, uh, you're going to read for us. Um, uh, yeah. I think you said you were going to read this a section about cake, but also, um, you know, there's there's a, there's a section about schnitzel as well. And uh, Niven, in uh, in your book, you know, there's a, uh, the the way that particularly um, the, the young actors, Lauren and Tom, engage with the Italian food and the kind of the the um the, the sort yeah of the, there's some great the, mir- there. the miracle of pasta <laughs> yeah um you know the, the fact of what just like uh what flour and egg and water yeah can produce something um quite so uh quite so miraculous um and so yeah it just kind of for these sort of these books which have artists at their center is it sort of do you think almost a sort of a natural um uh, yeah, just a sort of a natural consequence of that, that the kind of the, the, the sensuality, the sort of this, the, the excitement of sort of discovering sort of flavors and things like that, particularly in a new city, will um, 
will, yeah. will, will, will feature. But very, very much so. And I think, you know, you can't write a novel about Italy, for me, and not write about food, you know. So, you know, I'm, I'm always, A, I'm always hungry. B, I'm always <laughs> interested in, in writers who write about food. I think about, you know, people like James Salter who wrote about food really amazingly. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm always interested in how you kind of weave that through for sure. Um, and there's a couple of, you know, set scenes that are around a couple of big dinners that I really like. And I finished those thinking, I really want to have those dinners. Um, and I'm interested in also how filmmakers shoot food. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, Scorsese, there's a whole load of people. And again, I kind of, those are references to that. Even the fish at the beginning of the film is sort of a reference to um, an early Visconti film about fishermen, the Terra Tremor, which is about sort of, a sort of a communist reading of an uprising of a group of fishermen. So I'm always kind of thinking of all those kind of layers, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and and Musa, of course, like, you know, this might be unfair, but I think often Germany is not necessarily considered sort of a culinary paradise. But I I, I have to say the sort of the... I understand, <laughs> no, but I understand, why, that I understand yeah. why that is. It's because, let's, and let's be charitable to those critics, um, fresh produce is, you know, it's tough mm-hmm. to get fresh produce to a place like berlin because of how far it is from the coast right and that's a fair comment sure. um and also like because a lot of people don't speak german you know you've got with all respect to germany you've got austria switzerland and uh, germany itself and you've got this kind of like tight ecosystem and not much gets out which is why a lot of people don't know about stuff happening in the german media because a lot of people don't speak german as a second language and so it's its own ecosystem so a lot of good news in terms of the food doesn't really get out but what Germany's amazing for is affordable food and bringing this round to the concept of artists. I think it goes beyond artists. I think it's about artists generally don't make that much money for most of their lives. And even by the end of it. And the one thing that artists have in common with the rest of the surrounding community is fundamentally they use food as a form of ritual and a form of restoration, a restorative, a redemptive uh, practice, a ritual that they, you know, it's not like going to the opera. You can afford to cook yourself a good meal. And so there's a scene where I write in the other novel that I'm working on where the narrator basically cooks a recipe that his mother gave him in order to restore his sense of self after a racist attack. Because cooking a meal, having control over the elements of something delicious and beautiful mm. gives that person a sense of self they can't get by going to a therapist or whatever. And of course, go to therapy too, by all means. But like part of the restoration of self is through the cooking. And I noticed it in a wider context. I went to um, Greece in 2016 after Greece was hit by, you know, successive waves of austerity policies from the EU. Um, And a huge thing that was keeping that society together was the ritual of food. The ritual of food, being able to sit for family meals. I thought to myself, my goodness, without food, what would societies be without the mitch, the ritual of a meal? And so that why, that's why, to me, um, I had to put that segment about cake in the book because, as will become clear, it's about cake, but it's not really about cake at all. It's about mm-hmm. humanity and a place of repose and a place of rest and memory. Yeah. Mm. All that from cake. On which note, I think <laughs> we are going to have oh, to leave sorry. it there. Um, Diary of a Film and In the End It Was All About Love are both available from the Shakespeare and Company uh, online store. All that remains for me to say is Niven Govindan, Musa Okwanga, thank you for being on the Shakespeare and Company podcast. You have been listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Links to the books discussed today are available in the show notes for this episode, alongside links to our online store and details about how to become a friend of Shakespeare and Company. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving a rating wherever you listen. It can really help spread the word. 
Production of this podcast was by David Grove, and the intro and outro music is Mr. Ginger by the brilliant Alex Fryman, available on his album Play It Gentle. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care, stay safe, and thanks again for listening. Thank you.